Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast about cinema and the Criterion Collection. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. Tonight, John Cassavetti's The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, released in its original form in 1976, and later as a shortened version in 1978. Cosmo Botelli, played by Ben Gazzara, is the poster boy of masculine bravado. A seedy striptease nightclub owner, he enjoys life with a constant entourage of his female employees. His is a fragile, somewhat pathetic empire. When Vitelli racks up a massive gambling debt, he finds himself in over his head, forced to commit a crime to pay off what he owes. Cassavetti's documentary style is effectively revealing, creating powerful suspense in this dark, moody, yet sunny noir. Ben Gazzara gives arguably his best performance as Cosmo Vitelli, a man who enjoys putting on a front, but has difficulty hiding his vulnerability and his inherent weaknesses. Released with four other Cassavetti's films in Criterion's five-film box set, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie is a surprising tour de force that exemplifies the director's groundbreaking style and his fascination with gender roles in American society. Pour a drink and get comfortable as we discuss this overlooked piece of 1970s cinema. So Nate, I think this is our our first examination of John Cassavetes, if I'm not mistaken. Um, You're correct. I was thinking that as we I was sitting down here to get ready for our recording, I was like, "Hey, wait, we haven't talked about Cassavetes yet." Yeah, I was I was trying to think back just just to remember if he crept in any other conversations, and I can't recall anything. So uh, I, I guess that's where we'll start. You know, just general impressions of Cassavetes as a director. Uh, your experience with him, and you know, we can kind of get into where we feel this film specifically kind of fits in uh, among his catalog. But uh, yeah, I'll just kick it over to you. Uh, thoughts on John Cassavetes? Well, before I begin, just uh, a little note to any listeners: um, this is my first. We just re- recently redid the flooring here in the room where I'm recording, so it might be a little more echoey. Uh, so if that is the case, because uh, it went to hardwood, uh, we'll just uh, I'll make adjustments future. So we'll just test and see how it is here tonight. So hopefully it's not too bad. Uh, but uh, with regard to Cassavetes, I think I first really knew him more as an actor than as a director. Uh, famously, yeah. he was in Rosemary's Baby, uh, The Dirty Dozen, right? So those were the, you know I guess two of the more famous parts he had. But he's been in a lot of work. And uh, I only later on realized that he also made films, and then I started seeing them. Uh, he's a, a director I think I found more interesting in terms of the influence he had versus his own output. I, I don't know that I find myself to be particularly drawn to Cassavetti's work for the most part. I find a lot of it self-indulgent, overly long. Uh, I think he maybe is a little too a little too indulging of his actors, uh, particularly his wife, Jenna Rollins, uh, that I think that he allows them just too much time and kind of just likes watching them act when he needs to move the story along. But you can see how a, a voice like his definitely influenced people like a Martin Scorsese or a Paul Thomas Anderson. And I think these yeah. other people that were inspired by him have gone on to do incredible work they may never have done were it not for the influence and the mentoring that they received from John Cassavetes, whether a mentoring that actually took place in the case of Scorsese with actual like tutelage, or mm-hmm. if it's just the mentoring that comes from watching his movies. Uh, so I guess that's kind of just a, a very, you know, 30,000 foot level thought about John Cassavetes. Yeah, I guess I would echo those sentiments. I mean, I, I always think of him as you know, certainly a pioneer of American independent cinema, but very much an actor's director, right? I mean, he, he, as you said, started out as an actor and is really in love with the process of acting and capturing powerful performances in a very raw and almost unedited way, right? So he, he does favor longer takes or, or at least allowing his actors to improvise in some ways. Though we should point out that he was quite particular about having a, a a very detailed screenplay before starting. You know, he wasn't like a Wong Kar Wai 
where it was just much more free-flowing and improvisational uh, and lacking a finished script. But at the same time, he encouraged his actors to really embellish and um, uh, expand upon the written word on the page. So there, there's a real sense of spontaneity uh, in improvisation to his films, and this, this film is no exception. Um, but just uh, the fact that he was, like I mentioned, a, a great pioneer of uh, independent American cinema, um, I, I would agree with you that I'm not a huge fan of his films in general. I, I do enjoy them. I do recognize uh, how influential they've been and how important they are in you know the spectrum of American cinema. But I, I guess I admire him more as an idea, you know, the idea of the independent director, the idea of, of a director making personal films with his close friends frequently in his own home. Uh, that's always an exciting notion to me, this idea that you can make these compelling features uh, in, you know, by self-financing them or just by using the resources you have on hand and and that's that's a very inspiring thing to me personally. So uh, I would agree with that. I think his, um, I mean, you said like as an idea. I mean, just the idea that somebody would sit down and say, "All right, I'm going to go to a movie, and then maybe I run out of financing before I actually finish the movie, and then I'm just going to kind of figure out a way to kind of get back to this movie down the road. You know, and I'll, I might go take an acting job to get paid to then come and take the money I made off that to then reinvest in my movie. I appreciate and respect him as an artist. Even if I wasn't always sold on what he was trying to do, I appreciate the integrity with which he did carry it out. And I think that's important to to comment on with John Cassavetes is he really was, I think, a truly sincere, faithful artist. Even if he wasn't always successful in what he attempted, you can't fault him in terms of the integrity with which he carried out his work. Yeah, absolutely. And and when I think of his films, I, I just think of those raw performances, right? The real, just the rawness of uh, the film stylistically, the use of the camera, the documentary style. It's very cinema verite, uh, you know, Faces being one of the very early examples where it's a fairly startling film stylistically when you when you see it for the first time. And and again, you can really tell that Cassavetes is enamored with the process of acting, and and certainly with with cinematic language. But that's kind of in the background, right? It's really it's always about the performances when I think of his films. Um, Woman under the under the influence is probably his most famous film uh, with Jenna Rowland's performance. Though I do think Peter Falk gives the better performance in that film. Uh, but it's something that, you know, I, I think always stands out in people's minds that, that it's really about the experience of the actors and creating an environment for the actor, uh, to, uh, really hit some new highs. Right. And, uh, as, as a result, as you said, it can come across as self-indulgent and, and lacking in, you know, um, and judicious editing, but uh, at the same time, there's there's a lot to admire there, just from a uh, a study of of film acting and film performance in general. I think that might be actually his his greatest talent as a director and as a writer too. I mean, he writes juicy parts for these actors, and then he, yeah. as a director, allows them the as you said, he he did he wasn't the um, an undisciplined filmmaker even though it sometimes feels that way, it was it, what he cre- creates, the impression he creates on the screen of it seeming to be free form and, uh, you know, is uh, unstructured is really a carefully deliberate plan that he has created. But yeah. I think that, you know, he as a director is able to really work well with his cast. I mean, none of his films are exactly really fantastic in terms of, uh, cinematography, set design, anything like that. And they're not trying to be. Although I do think this one in particular, Killing of Chinese Bookie, actually has some very interesting and strong visuals within it. It's probably his most visually interesting movie he made. But I think that, you know, for the most part, he's just trying to use the camera as a way of getting you into the actors, right? And to really highlight and feature those actors. Because in his heart, that is what he is. And I think he approaches his other work as a director, as a writer, from the mindset of what it is to be an actor. 
Well, let's jump into to the film itself here. So, I I, I guess well, I guess I'll take maybe a potentially controversial opinion. Uh, I think the killing of a Chinese bookie might be his best film. It's my favorite Cassavetes film. I haven't seen all of his films, but I've seen uh, a good handful. Uh, of course, I've seen the five the five films in Criterion's box set. And the first time I went through that box set, this is the film that really stood out to me as something special. And it's the one I've gone back to the most times uh, since originally uh, seeing that box set. Uh, I, I just find it to be a real mesmerizing hypnotic film. And it really hinges on, on Ben Gazzara's performance. And we can get into that, uh, into that in more detail here later. But just overall impressions of the film. You, know, you mentioned visually it's his most interesting film. I would agree with that. I mean, there's some interesting uh, use of lighting, especially in the nightclub scenes. Uh, the documentary style is very effective here. Uh, it has kind of a languid pace to it, especially the original longer form 1976 cut. And the film has this it's it's very difficult to characterize its style, you know, beyond calling it documentary style. It has this kind of subtle way of almost creeping into your subconscious. You know, it's a film that's just really stuck with me since the first time I saw it. And it's hard to really uh, identify why. It has a, a very haunting quality to it as well. I mean, you know, Ben Gazzara, his character is so... Uh, at first uh, uh, appearance just seems so confident, right? And seems so uh, comfortable in his environment, but you quickly realize that that's a veneer and it's a fairly thin veneer. And when you start to peer through the cracks and the vulnerability of this character, that's where the film I think really shines. And this ultimately is a noir, and that's, uh, I think, a startling thing. It's a gangster picture as well in some ways. And to see Cassavetes take those stylistic conventions, those genre conventions, and kind of turn them on their heads and adapt them for his own distinctive style creates a film that's just very, uh, very distinct and, and, for me, very memorable. Uh, so what were your first impressions of this film, Nate? I'll I'll join you in th- saying I think this is his best film. Uh, you know, he didn't really direct that many movies. I think he directed about 12 films total. And yeah. there's a couple I have not seen. I haven't seen Husbands, for example, which also has Ben Gazzara in it. I think that was their, their first collaboration. Um, but I think that uh, this film is the most complete of all of his works. And the one that really, I think, pulls all the different elements of what it is to be a cinematic artwork together in terms of the acting, the storytelling, uh, the craft. I think there's a very strong visual direction here uh, that isn't found necessarily in his other work. Um, I think that, you know, it's funny because there's the two different versions, the 76 version, the 78 version. We've actually, Matt, the last few times we've been doing these podcasts, we've actually been picking movies with multiple versions on them. I don't know what's going on with us that we keep doing that. but just want to make more work for ourselves, I, I guess. Exactly. Yes, we're just gluttons for punishment here. Um, but I think that you know the '76 version, I think, is actually the superior. It, it famously was a bomb. Uh, it only played for seven d- days and then was pulled from release. And then a couple years later, Cassavetes went back and re-edited it. And not only did he shorten it by about a half hour, but he actually added some other takes in and some other bits in. He he rescored some scenes and tried to make it much more commercial. And I think that shorter version is good as well. But I think the the original version is actually the better, which is kind of interesting because usually I, I find Cassavetes to be too long. And this film, even though it is longer in that uh, original version, 135 minutes, I think actually the length, the, the drawing out of it, uh, actually makes it more effective. Uh, the the tone I think that is accomplished here is is kind of a patheticness, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's a very sad and pathetic life that uh, that uh, Cosmo is leading, and Ben Gazzara's performance really captures that. But everything captures it. I mean, the the choice of music, the music and the the routines for the strip club, uh, the the 
the bleached kind of sunlight when they're outside in the middle of the day and then the the dingy darkness when they're around at night. All that just works to create this kind of pathetic nature and tone around here uh, that I think ultimately is really, really effective at kind of making this film, like you said, it's a it's a film noir, it's a neo-noir, uh, but I think also really just a, a great exploration of people in that middle period of their life that just life has not worked out for them and they really want it to be, but they just somehow haven't made it, right? I yeah. think that's what this film really speaks to and that's why even though it's, yes, in many ways it's very cinematic, it's it's got a, a gangster element, a massive gambling debt, and then Spoiler alert, there's a killing of a Chinese bookie in this movie, believe it or not. How dare uh, you? <laughs> that yeah, I know, sorry, sorry, I, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have said that, but uh you know, it's just that this film really speaks to me, I think, on a human level for my own self, for I think many people's lives. Uh and I think audiences probably at the time when it came out didn't necessarily appreciate it because they were looking for a gangster movie. You know, and they got something else entirely. They got really just a meditation on midlife. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting way to look at it. I, I think on the surface, you know, people would look at this film's themes as relating to, uh, you know, examination of masculinity, uh, men's roles versus women's roles in in society and the or in the entertainment industry. I, I think those are kind of surface you know, uh, thematic, um, kind of thrusts in this film and, and some of that material is there. I, I do think Cassavetes is exploring, especially the idea of masculinity and, and what it means to be, uh, to be a successful businessman or just a successful man in general. Uh, just this idea of the, you know, this kind of macho, you could say chauvinistic facade, uh, but, you know, Cosmo Batelli or, you know, Ben Gazar's rendition of this character has a real sense of admiration, I think, for his employees. I mean, I, I think he realizes that he's in the business of exploitation, right? But you do get the sense that he really does care for the people uh, that work for him. And it's not just an entirely exploitative sort of relationship. It's complicated, and, and those scenes that he has backstage, you know, just discussing uh, life with with the uh, performers are some of my favorite in the film because they really walk this line of, you know, what does it mean to, to be the boss, to be an employer, to be uh, an entertainer, but at the same time, you know, to connect with your employees as human beings. Uh, so you mentioned this idea of a midlife crisis and, and yeah, Cosmo, it's clear that his life hasn't turned out the way that he had intended. Right. I mean, he doesn't have, uh, the super popular nightclub that he was hoping to, um, to develop. It's, it's kind of this rundown, uh, CD joint, uh, presumably in Las Vegas somewhere, uh, or in Nevada somewhere. Well, I think I it's think... supposed to be in in L.A. on the Sunset Strip. Is it really? I, I thought it was in Nevada for some reason. I, 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 be... I'm pretty sure it's... I, I, I think it's supposed to be L.A. Okay. Uh, you're probably right. But just this idea that, okay, he's his place is off, off the beaten path, right? It, he, people kind of have to know it uh, to find it. And he he has this sense of identity crisis, too, where he's just trying to define who he is and what he wants to be and, and how to achieve the success he he's always hoped to, to achieve. So, yeah, thematically it's very complicated. And, and I think you have to look at it from a more broad perspective and not necessarily pick up on what may seem to be the obvious themes just on the surface. Um, well, I think but, one of the things it's – it's getting at, and the, you know, Ben Kazar has talked about that he's always thought of this as being really Cassavetes making a movie about himself, right? As a as an artist, trying to be an artist, but having all these people like the gangsters, maybe kind of being almost a metaphor for 
studio bosses or audience or whoever that's saying, no, you got to do it this way. You got, they kind of interfere and they kind of try to interfere with your art. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, just the fact that you're trying to have some sort of, uh, purpose to your art, but nobody seems to appreciate it. Right. And I think there is kind of funny because one of the themes that's at work in this film, and it becomes very apparent in that final scene in the club, when Cosmo is speaking to uh, Mr. Sophistication, right. The, the very, yeah, <laughs> awful and untalented MC and all the different strippers. Uh, he's talking to them in kind of almost like a, a prep rally or a philosophy statement. He's trying to make uh, basically, you know, trying to say, well, we all have to find our own happiness, right? And for him, happiness is in trying to have these art routines, that, you know, coaching them and designing a musical number and a routine. When really nobody gives a shit about any of that, all they want is to see some women flashing their breasts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he's like playing a totally different world that he thinks could be great that nobody's interested in. And I think that is a fascinating thing thematically, right? To realize that, wow, you know, people could really have a strong vision of their life that nobody else cares about. And almost everything about the world around you is set to stop and impede what you want to accomplish. And of course, I think, you know, at the end of the day, Cosmo just simply lacks the talent to to run this. And he's very much a self-destructive person. I mean, we didn't talk about it too much, but he's in this gambling debt right after just getting out of a gambling debt, right? The very beginning of the movie, he just makes his final payment after having had a gambling debt. He's free. He can advance things financially for himself. He can make his business grow. What's one of the things he first does? He gets his entourage of girls to go out and get into high stakes gambling and he winds up $23,000 in debt. Yeah. Right. I think, uh, so I think he paid a, off his club initially. Um, I mean, he was paying off a loan shark, but I, I think he, he was paying off the, uh, the balance on the club itself. Oh, I see. I took it as that, 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 that first guy, that Marty is actually a debt that he already had from gambling before. Yeah, maybe so. I, right after that, though, he comes back and he says that he paid off the club. But, I, I mean, it's well, beside, maybe, it's guys, beside the I point. I mean, the point is he was yeah. in debt, and then he immediately goes out and gets himself in debt again. Yeah. Exactly, yes. He's just very self-destructive behavior, right? I mean, yeah. he just has that repeatedly. And so, you know, it's, it's just it's an interesting thing to show that character because I think that's a bold decision as a filmmaker uh, to really kind of have your characters be so uncinematic right i mean i think yeah. that's what i love about this movie is that it's it's a gangster film or it's a noir film that is so not cinematic and yet has a very clear cinematic vision and uh something very interesting about how it approaches this genre uh so i i, I just think that it really is a great triumph artistically yeah and like i was saying it's just hard to put your finger on why this film works too because like you said it does it's still very much noir. It's still very much a gangster film, but it, it it plays into those conventions, you know, only long enough to establish their existence within the framework of the film, right? I mean, it, he's just not interested, uh, Cassavetes, in in presenting those those genres uh, in a traditional manner, but. Um, I mean, we need, we need to get into to Ben Gazzara here. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think I've seen a ton of his films, but he's always someone that stood out to me whenever I, I see him in a movie, even something like Roadhouse. Uh, <laughs> but I, this has to be his best, best performance. I mean, the just the the subtlety, the vulnerability of his character. Uh, yet the bravado and the confidence that he does exude at certain moments is incredible. I mean, just the nuances in his face, you know, the expressions at various points in this film are, are just so memorable to me. And the, and the camera rightfully lingers on him for, uh, you know, fairly long takes. And there are some scenes that, that feel very unscripted and feel very improvisational, especially that scene with uh, Rachel's mother toward the end of the film. Uh, Rachel being one of the mm -hmm. performers in the club that uh, it was his girlfriend, basically. And just how the camera lingers on him. Uh, and, and the camera, 
operation isn't the greatest in this film, right? It's frequently out of focus. Uh, it's a lot of long lenses, which is, of course, difficult to maintain focus. But that doesn't really detract from the experience. It it's. Uh, I would there, argue it enhances the experience. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there's a rawness to the filmmaking style that actually amplifies the rawness of the performance. And uh, what, what are your your thoughts on his performance in general? I mean, I, I just think it's it's one of the great screen performances that I can think of. It's it's a shame that it gets overlooked because it is one of the 1970s leading man performances that I think really deserves a lot of uh, attention. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we think about that era. We think about Jack Nicholson or Robert De Niro or Al Pacino. But uh, Ben Gazzara was never one of those kinds of names. But this performance is up there with the very best work that those incredible actors were doing at this time as well. And I think that you're right. The, the camera work really does aid the performance in this. I think the use of close-ups, the long takes, allows him to sort of have that kind of weird world weariness and that tiredness, and it captures that very well. I think a lot of his performance is achieved through his posture. Um, your tone of voice is also important in this performance, the way he just has a kind of exhausted way of speaking, and then kind of at times trying to almost present on top of that exhaustion a certain kind of confidence that yeah, doesn't exactly. really exist, right? Yeah. And I think that you know his tone of voice is very effective here, but really what I'm thinking of most of all is the scene, the 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 actual scene where he goes and kills the Chinese bookie, which is not towards the end of the film. It's actually more in the middle of the film. Uh, you know, that that just the way he handles that scene without any dialogue and the way he looks at this and kind of is confronting the reality of what he's doing. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's a very intense moment and it's also a very sad moment because you realize he is going to kill a man that he doesn't know, doesn't understand, but it's just that or suffer the consequences that come from his, his gambling debt, which could be his own life being taken from him. It could be, uh, you know, he loses his club, whatever it might be. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that's the kind of interesting thing about his performance is that a lot of it's achieved through posture and not through necessarily through always dialogue. Yeah, I think that's a great point because the way he carries himself is definitely really important. And I, I, I think of even just his introduction in the film as being one of the strongest scenes performance-wise when he's paying off the... the um, Lone Shark in the beginning there at that outdoor cafe, just the way he interacts uh, with that guy. And he has this, you know, sort of congenial quality to him. I, I, he even claims to be his friend to a point, yet he completely tears him down before leaving the table, right? Telling him he has no, no style basically. And, and he doesn't want to see him again, all those things. Exactly, right? yeah. and and he says it with with this sort of you know vindictive kind of smile, kind of a smirk, and it's a weird thing because it it doesn't come across as like you know I'm the big shot and I'm telling you off and I'm the tough guy and you better not bother me again. It's again, it's this sense of vulnerability, it's this sense of fragility, it's this sense of him kind of putting on a front. Uh, and there's a tinge of regret in his interaction, too, that he's even in this situation in the first place, that he even has to know somebody like this. And it's not a matter of, like, I'm, I'm pitying myself for, uh, you know, being so low as to have to deal with someone like this. Uh, it's, it's even beyond that. It's just it's a weariness that he's chosen this life uh, in general, I think. And it's, it's just the subtleties of that moment really stand out to me. And it really sets the tone for the film beautifully because you get the sense of the complexity of this character right away. Um, and just the way the camera follows him as he walks, you know, inside the restaurant briefly and walks back to the table. And again, it's these fairly long takes that actually technically aren't the easiest things to accomplish, uh, especially with long lenses and, and the camera operation, I think in that scene is actually pretty good. 
and you, you get the sense of the heat as well. It, it, it's kind of a a twilight sort of scene, but it still feels oppressive. It feels hot, and you know uh, they're drinking coffee, or at least one of them's drinking coffee, and and it, it, there's just kind of this uncomfortable atmosphere, and you're not entirely informed of the background of these characters, but you you get the sense that there's tension here already. So, yeah, to me, this film is just all about the nuances. You know, it's just, uh, it's really steeped in those nuances. And and each time I've seen it, it kind of reveals itself in new ways. I'd like to just pick up on your point there about the camera work. Uh, Obviously, as you said, there are certain things that technically aren't great. I mean, there's moments where something's a little out of focus or where the focus takes a, you're just, they're a little slow getting it into the focus the way they want, but it all works because they are going for a sort of documentary style yeah. and it does create that sense of urgency and that kind of sense of we're just capturing this story as it's really happening. So, it, you know, the, the, the style is, I think, very effective and it's, you know, a good mixture, I think, of handheld camera work as well as some very good setups. You know, I mean, not everything's handheld, but it, it just feels very authentic in terms of the way everything is structured. But what I really thought was very effective here, especially watching it in anticipation of our conversation, is the use of close-ups, not just close-ups of actors, but close-ups of sets. You don't have a lot of establishing shots here, right? And yeah. I just think about how, you know, the, for example, after they go gambling and he's driving with the girls and bring them home and it's this very kind of heartbreaking scene, like, oh, God, you know, we're back in debt again and I can't possibly <laughs> pay it off. And right? it's, it's this very humiliating sort of experience. And you could think of how almost any other director would like have a, a big, huge establishing shot of the street and you'd see the vehicle driving down the street and then you'd cut in, you'd go close and maybe you'd go in on inside the car or you'd walk, drive along with the car and then you'd have this you know shot reverse shot of the different people in it and all these things right and then you might have like another shot that's maybe from across the street that shows them getting out of it you know that's like how your typical director would establish that scene and shoot yeah. that scene instead it just is like right next to the car and it's like kind of uncomfortable and it's awkward and it's it's not exactly in the car it's not exactly out of the car you don't exactly know where you are you know you don't really know the neighborhood but you know you're in a neighborhood and you know it's morning but everything just feels off because for the characters everything is off and i think audiences perhaps back in 76 when this was first released were responding to that right it's a, it's, it's an uncomfortable feeling and I think a lot of audiences today might even respond to that, like, gosh, this just seems discomfortable. Right? It just seems like there's something out of out of whack here. And it is purposefully, right? And I think a lot of just some smart framing is taking place here. Uh, another scene, I think, where the camera work is exceptional is that scene where after uh, he's at the restaurant and the woman says, can I audition for you, right? The waitress wants to audition for you. And then he finally says, yeah, sure. And they yeah. go over and they have her doing this little routine. You know, you know she's naked, right? And the camera doesn't show it at all. It's or like very maybe a passing glimpse here or there. It's mostly focused on her legs because he's looking at her legs as she dances. And he's trying to give her some direction about how to dance or when to jump or when to do things like that, right? And it's just an interesting way because you could see how many other people, especially if it's an exploitative movie, would be, all right, get the breasts on screen and get a big close-up of them or whatever it might be. And here it's like not even there for you, right? And it's just interesting camera work like that really is, I think, important to appreciate here because it really is part of how the movie operates on you as a viewer and how some of its themes and then how the characters start to make sense to us. Uh, so I really think that, like I said before, this is his, this is Cassavetti's most visually impressive film because of, I think, not just some of the interesting lighting that's happening, but also because of the thought and how to set up and frame and tell the story through the visuals. Yeah. And the film has almost a, a meta quality to it as well. You know, just, uh, um, Cosmo Patelli, of course, is very concerned about the quality of his uh, his act and his show, and and he he knows that people are there just to see the nudity, right? But he still puts a lot of thought into the presentation itself, and you could say Cassavetes maybe suffered from the same syndrome while making this film that 
a lot of people maybe thought, oh, you know, it's a film about a striptease show. We'll, we'll get to see uh, see some some nudity in the process. But I, I, th- I think that's why he chose to film that scene that you mentioned in that way, right? To show the legs, uh, just to almost say to the audience that this is not about titillation. This is about uh, Cosmo. This is about what he is finding important and uh, the quality of the show he's trying to put together, even though it's just this awful stage show that really has no coordination to it or any kind of <laughs> impressive artistry. You know, it's just uh, a, a sweaty... She prances a couple of times. That's about it. Well, right? so, well but yeah. just even the show itself, when we, when we see it, and there's some pretty lengthy sequences in this film that focus on the stage show, and I... A lot of those portions were jettisoned, I think, for the uh, the shorter version. But when Mr. Sophistication, he's just kind of standing there singing off-key or, uh, you know, uh, speaking in these kind of bizarre poetic phrases while uh, the girls are up there uh, flashing. It's just this awful kind of painful show to to experience and i i think that's probably why a lot of people felt that initial cut was excessive or too long because those sequences were so long but but they do serve a purpose and they do illustrate really the pathetic nature of of cosmo patelli's world and even though he takes pride in, in what he's doing he's just not as you said he's just not very talented in in bringing all the pieces together um so but another thing that struck me too is just you know, if anyone has been in a dark, dingy bar during the day and the door opens and the the light, especially if it's a sunny day, just pours into that dark, dingy space, uh, that's always something that, that stands out, uh, of course, when you're in a place like that in real life, but in this film in particular, when you're inside a club like that, when you're inside a bar, uh, you don't necessarily have full, um, a full sense of your bearings, right? You know, because it's dark and it's hiding a lot of the decay of that space. And when the door is thrown open and that light shines in there and you see how run down or dingy the place that you're, you're in really is, it can be a very startling thing. And, and clubs like this, Obviously, they're very dimly lit, a lot of colored lighting. But when the lights are on and the, the chairs are on the tables and, and you, you see it for what it is, it tends to be a very unimpressive, uh, sort of cheap-looking space. And I think this film uh, exemplifies that, too. And we kind of see those behind-the-scenes bits when the show is not going on, uh, especially those little bits where Cosmo's behind stage with that kind of pathetic little microphone system with the pre-recorded music and the sound effects and things and you know something he's probably done a hundred times over the years he still even though it might be routine to him uh and he knows that he's he's got a uh an empire of dirt so to speak he still takes a sense of pride in it and and you know that speech at the end of the film when he's talking to the performers is really obviously one of the most important scenes in the film. It's kind of the climax of the film in a way where he's just talking about happiness and what it means to be happy and what, you know, what is the nature of truth? And to Cosmo, everyone has a different truth. He clearly doesn't believe in the idea of universal truth, right? It's for him, it's when he's angry and when he is trying to be someone he's not, that's when he's happy. And it's really a confession in that scene. And I don't think his employees necessarily understand the the gravity of what he's saying, right? Especially given the fact that, that he's been shot and he's bleeding, uh, even though the, the dark color of his uh, jacket is hiding that. Uh, Cosmo clearly is thinking about his own mortality at that point and just trying to define what makes life worth living for him? Uh, and maybe if he passes that knowledge on to some other people, they can, uh, they can adapt that and find their own happiness. So that's, that's a very powerful scene. I, I think 
there's really only two scenes in the film where he has those lengthy conversations backstage. It's in the beginning and at the end. And I think those really serve as bookends, uh, showing us the evolution of his character. You know, his arc is kind of started in the beginning on the first one and, and really completed by the end. You know, I, I just think that's partly why the the original version with the greater amount of emphasis on those dance and other scenes that is so important because in that you also are learning about these other characters, his troop, so to speak, right? These people yeah. that in the shortened version are just kind of incidental to the story. You know, it's really more about the, the shortened version is really about him and the the gambling debt and then the gangsters, Right, that that this brings him into contact with, and the club is kind of more or less just a a setting there. It doesn't feel like it's as much a part of his story uh, as it does in the longer version. Because I think those actors or those characters, uh, because we see them drawn out in these very long, kind of painful, clumsy, lackluster uh, performances helps that final scene to mean so much more. Like you realize like these people are just trying to work, do a job, you know, they're having difficulties, you know, the, you know, they're dealing with complaining customers. They're doing all these things that people deal with all the time. And, you know, basically every one of them is kind of like life's hard and it's miserable and I don't know what to do about it. And in, this is his chance to give his thought about it. And his ultimate answer was, I'm just going to try to fake it. Right. Uh, and it's, it's ultimately kind of a, you know, a, it's fitting that he's basically bleeding out as he makes this because it really is ultimately his death march, right? He's just chosen a very unsatisfying life. And yeah. I think the film isn't afraid to show that. And it, it, it it's more of an effective climax uh, that you, if you have those extra scenes that are in the original version, than when you have the shortened version where it just doesn't have the same level of, of a punch thematically, I think in the shortened version. Yeah, I do have to confess. I mean, the there are moments in the longer version where it does feel like a slog, right? But I, like you said, I, but I, I think, think that's that, intentional. I don't yeah, mind it's that the point. because I it's think the that point. that's the that's the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of have to understand why that's there and how it functions in the film as a whole, and and I think it's important for that material to be there. You know, I mean, I, I think of a, a movie like. Uh, like Munich, you know, where it's this kind of endless string of assassinations and can feel overly long, but that's kind of part of the point. It's meant to to wear the audience down to make them feel like like the characters in the film. And, and there's a bit of that in this film too, where it's it, it's really trying to kind of grind down the audience uh, to the level of 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 Cosmo and his, his experience. So, um, yeah. Any other thoughts, anything else to add, uh, before we get into Criterion's release here? Well, we, we've obviously focused on Ben Gazzara's performance. I think it is worth saying that the rest of the cast is a mixture of both professional and non-professional actors. And that was a very common thing that Cassavetes would do that. He liked seeing the way those two would interact with each other uh, there was obviously a lot of rehearsal. There was a lot of them getting to know each other. But I think the intention that Cassavetes always had in doing that kind of casting was that it would obviously draw out, by being around other actors, real actors that are trained in this, the non-acting cast would kind of absorb some of that discipline and it would help them to create their characters. But the fact that those people weren't trained in this would then force the, uh, the trained actors to kind of let loose of some of their own method and have to realize they had to pay attention to the fact that they were acting with someone who didn't necessarily know how to act. Yeah. And I think it's very successful. I think the rest of that cast is very successful. Uh, these feel like real people. Obviously, one of the more famous faces people will recognize is Seymour Cassell, uh, who uh, plays Mort. He's kind of, the, I guess, the lead gangster of sorts. Uh, and uh, famously, he was in a lot of the Wes Anderson movies, right? So. Yeah. People probably recognize his face more than they would anybody else's here, but I just think that you know the the rest of the cast. Well, they're not given a ton of screen time. This is really clearly Ben Gazzara's show. He's in every scene. Nonetheless, they really do help fulfill the the whole of the of this particular production. 
Yeah, I, I agree. At no point did I feel, you know, like there was a, a obviously bad performance. I mean, it's obvious that some of the people here just aren't trained actors, but it never feels artificial. I mean, it really, there's a sense of authenticity to what we're seeing. And well, I think if you had a bunch of like real trained actors in like, say, all the parts of the strippers, it would start to feel artificial by having them be so well equipped. At, I'm going to play a part of a stripper as opposed to I think some of these girls were like Playboy bunnies or something like that. And I think, you know, it's just that you know, they kind of seem like, well, I just kind of come up here and look good. And that's kind of my job. Right. And that's you know, they kind of. I think capture a little bit of the reality of what a, a strip club would be like, right? Yeah. Saying as a guy who's ever never actually been to one. Um. <laughs> we can get into to Criterion's release here. So, uh, as I mentioned before, this is included in their uh, box set of five Cassavetes films. Originally came out on DVD um, many years ago. It has since been re-released in a, a Blu-ray version. You know, this is one of those films, I think. I, I, I mean, Blu-ray is always going to be preferred. Obviously, a high-definition transfer will always be preferred. But even if someone can only get their hands on the DVD, I, I do think the presentation, even in standard definition, is going to be pretty solid for this film. Because, I mean, it's a softer-looking film in general, right? Uh, just the nature of the photography and the, the style and the, the softer focus in general makes for, I think, a pretty strong transfer in either format. Um, I, I've still just got the, the DVD versions at this point, though, though I did watch the uh, high-definition version that's streaming on the Criterion channel right now. And Criterion channel does include both cuts at this time, so if people want to check it out, that's, that's the place to go. Uh, and the disc also includes um, a new interview, or a new interview with Ben Gazzara, and uh, one of the producers, and there's an audio interview with Cassavetes from the 1970s. Of course, Cassavetes uh, tragically died, I think, in the late 80s. I think he was in his late 50s. Uh, he, I think, died of liver cirrhosis. So um, he's unfortunately not with us anymore. But Criterion put out a fantastic box set. So if anyone is interested in... Cassavetes as a director, this is like the perfect starting point is to, to pick up this box set. Yeah, I would agree. It's it's a good set. I mean, the set as a whole is good. The The releases of the movies are good individually within them. Uh, I do have this on Blu-ray, uh, the box set, and it's very, it does look good, uh, and the special features are nice. They're just a little bit of extra flavor for getting to know the production and how they went about making the movie. Uh, so I, I, I would definitely agree with you Matt there's someone who wants to get into Cassavetes these movies I think are probably your best entry points to him the other stuff that he did outside of these uh, isn't probably as essential to trying to understand him as a filmmaker yeah I mean I I think the box set includes kind of the his greatest hits so to speak right so um, I know Criterion's put out couple other films right i think they put out love streams they put out husbands as well i think or was that a different yes. studio yeah, okay um and cassavetti's pretty much i mean I, I guess he still did some acting he did he was in mikey and nicky with peter falk uh later in his career so he kind of went back to some acting periodically but uh really seemed to focus more on on directing kind of in the during the heart of his career. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an outstanding set. Definitely one of Criterion's best box sets for sure. So, uh, Nate, is, well, thank you. <laughs> um, as we close out our, con- so Nate, as we close out our conversation, uh, does the killing of a Chinese bookie, belong in the Criterion Collection. Yes, and I know sometimes we do this thing where we say, well, maybe not on its own, but it was part of a collection it does. Yeah. And I would just say, even on its own, if there was no box set here, of just this movie on its own definitely belongs there. Cassavetes, like we said, is important. He's influential. 
Even if I'm not a big fan of him overall, I think I can recognize that. So you should represent him. And I do think this is his best work. And I think it it's a fair representation of his work, but it's also um, probably the most cinematic of his work. And so I, I definitely think it belongs there and it's rightly a, a part of the collection. Yeah, I have to agree. No surprise there. Um, yeah, it's my favorite Cassavetes. I mean, and, and I... I think it's his best film as well, as you said. I, I was actually surprised to hear you say that. Uh, I, I think we had talked about this film briefly before, and you had mentioned the same thing. And and I, I have always felt the same way. And it, it seems like a film that people don't really talk about or don't really focus on when they talk about his career. It gets kind of lost in the shuffle. And uh, Woman Under the Influence or Faces seems to be more more in the foreground. But... Yeah, if people right. People tend to gravitate towards his domestic stuff. I mean, those movies yeah. are very much like, oh, it's just kind of set in a house, right? This is much more a movie than the other stuff he's done. Well, I also think like uh, a film like A Woman Under the, Under the Influence is very. Um, it's easy to pull clips out of that movie, you know, that show impressive acting. So it, it has more of that flashiness to it, whereas this. This is really its own thing, right? It's a very unique piece of work. It there isn't necessarily one scene that's going to blow your socks off, but it's really uh, a more more about the the work as a whole, the film as a whole, the entire experience, just the hip- hypnotic nature of it. And and like I said, it has a haunting quality to it, and it's it's the film I've gone back to the most among all of Cassavetti's films. So. Yeah, definitely check it out, and it's uh, it's on the short list, I think, of, of great 1970s films, too, at least for me. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening this evening. Our film next month will be Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums. Thanks again, and keep collecting.